Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have a, a big topic to discuss today, which is I'm going to just try to, it's a, just, just at least um, try to skim the surface of um, uh, a discussion about the nature of holiness. What, what is holiness? And, and it's, it's a hard thing to discuss. We're in Parshish Kedoshim, so it seems appropriate to discuss the subject now. It's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to discuss because there's um, kind of like an, an X factor to it, meaning to say that it's, um, it's very hard to pin down exactly. And I think maybe the, the best place to start um, is, is maybe with a, a classic uh, Torah from the Ramban, who sort of like um, addresses this question. And he does so by, by pointing out the fact that a person can, can eat 100% super glot kosher, and yet still be a, a total glutton. I mean, so in other words, you, 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 have an, uh, you, you have someone who could be, you know, so incredibly strict and yet hundreds of pounds overweight because they can't stop eating. Or, or he gives another example of this where a person is only drinking um, kosher wine and, you know, with all maybe, you know, with all the strictest, you know, hectares on it and yet is a complete drunkard. So the guy is like absolutely only drinking kosher wine, but he's rolling around in a gutter. So from this, and this is again from the Ramban, so he's like talking about this approximately a thousand years ago. He's, he's shining a light on, on, on a question of holiness, which is that holiness already is something that's beyond the simple observance of the, of the commandments themselves. In other words, that is a basic level, and, and we're obligated in that. But nonetheless, if you want to reach this level of being holy, that it, it's, there's, and like I say, there's this X factor, there's this, there's this extra dimension, which is a little bit harder to pin down. So I want to begin to try to, to discuss some of these, um, some of these elements, um, and, and see if we can get a, a, a better sense for maybe what they are. I saw uh, this, this Torah, and I, I thought it was, just again, by way of introducing the subject, something very, very special. Um, it comes from the Belzer Rebbe, and he points out that the, that the word um, in Hebrew for mountain is har, um, heresh. And there's a, a verse in the Torah that says that, says that um, that when God gave the, the, the Torah at, at Mount Sinai, um, that we should make a border around the mountain, because if we went and we touched the mountain, that that was going to be, uh, that, that was going to be harmful, okay? Because, because why? Because the mountain, the Har, was Kodesh. The, the mountain was holy, okay? So we had to make a fence, a border around the mountain. Okay, that's what the that's what the verse in the Torah says. So the Belzer Rebbe looks into the sort of the dynamics of that, and he finds something very amazing. He says, "Look at the word uh, mountain, right? Har, re- referring to Mount Sinai, Hey Reish. And if you were to make a border around the letters Hey and Reish, so what would a border around a letter be? So the border would be the letter before and the letter after. That's how he's approaching it. Okay." So if you look at the letters surrounding or bordering, if you will, making a border around the word har, so around the letter hey, 
The letter before He is Dalit, and the letter after He is Vav. And now if you go to the letter Resh, the letter before Resh is Kuf, and the letter after Resh is Shin. So now if you take the, these letters which are bordering the mountain, and you arrange these letters, it spells Kadosh, which means holy. Kuf, Dalit, Vav, Shin is Kadosh. So it, this is an amazing, an amazing thing that it, it says in the Torah, don't touch the, make a border around the mountain because the mountain is holy, meaning Mount Sinai is holy. So, so, so again, you have to go, you have to make a, a fence. You have to go a little bit beyond or, or I want to approach it a slightly different way because in, in, in my way of approaching this right now, there is like, sort of like, if you imagine the mountain, and you imagine the part before the mountain, that's already, I'm just giving you my visualization, that's already inside the mountain. So that's like unseen. And then you have the area outside the mountain, that's seen, right? And in that, I think that you have a little bit of a dynamic of how to approach the whole concept of holiness, which is, there is a part that's seen, that's the part that's revealed, right? That's the part where you're, say, keeping glad kosher, and you're drinking kosher wine, but then you need this extra dimension, which is the part that's unseen. And again, that's where we get back to this idea of the X factor. What is that unseen quality which makes a person holy? You know, so it's something beyond just the tangible aspect of it. So, so I'm going to go through a... Um, a few different points in, in no special order and will form sort of like an impression. We'll just kind of like piece together sort of an intuitive approach. And let's begin with a story I told a little while ago, but I was so happy because I found another story from a completely different source, which is the same story with a completely different ending, right, from a different person. So it's not the same story, but it is the same story. But anyway, you'll see they work really nicely together because, um, and they shine a light on this question, okay? So let's start with the story that, that, that we mentioned earlier. It's a classic story with the, with the Chovitz Chaim, right? So the Chovitz Chaim is, is riding in a wagon and the, the, the driver is taking him and the driver is making conversation with him and, and the driver doesn't know that he's escorting the great Chovitz Chaim, one of our, our greatest holy men. And the driver says to him, where are you going? And the Chovetz Chaim says, to Radin. And the driver gets very excited. He says, Radin, this is the home of the, of the great Chovetz Chaim. And the Chovetz Chaim, remember he doesn't know who he is, the Chovetz Chaim says, he's not so great. And the wagon driver says, what are you talking about? How can you speak like this, you know? And the Chovetz Chaim says back, he says, listen, I know him personally, and I can promise you that his reputation is exaggerated. And the wagon driver gets so upset that he hits him with a stick, right? <laughs> so he drops him off, and the Chovetz Chaim goes home, and the wagon driver, a little later, says, you know, I'm in Radin, I might as well go and see the Chovetz Chaim. So he goes to visit him, and, you know, to get a blessing, and he, he walks into his place, and he sees that this is the person who he assaulted, you know, and he faints. And the Chovetz Chaim revives him, and he says to him, he goes, he says, no, he says, you were right to hit me, 
because the halacha is that you're not allowed to speak Lashon Hara against yourself. Right? You can't say, like, you know, use bad language, inappropriate speech against yourself either. It's not just for other people. It includes yourself. Okay, that's story number one. Now listen to this story. Rebeli Melech of Lezhensk, who is one of the greatest Hasidic masters, he was in, the, uh, in a bathhouse, and I guess back then, I guess, they, you know, before indoor plumbing, there would be these communal places where people would, would bathe. And someone comes and somehow they strike up this conversation. And it turns out that this person um, has come from a pretty faraway place, especially to see Rebeli Melech of Lezhensk. And Rebeli Melech of Lezhensk says, you know, really, again, he doesn't know that he's speaking to Rebeli Melech. And Rebeli Melech says to him, you know, you know, you could have really saved your time. You didn't really have to travel so far to see him. And the guy gets very upset, and he starts yelling at him, like, what are you talking about? Rebeli Melech is so great. And he goes, you know, really, he's not so great. And then he goes, ah, and then he really, you know, I don't, he doesn't hit him in this story, but he really, like, yells at him. Okay. Later on, the man comes to see Rebeli Melech, and he sees that this is the person who he was yelling at. Now listen to how this story ends. Different, different ending. He's so mortified, and he starts apologizing. And Rebbe Limelech says back to him, he says, it's okay. You told the truth, and I also told the truth. So, so this is a different ending. A different ending. And, and to me, this is... Um, one of the, one of the um, hallmarks, I would say, of holiness, which is that you don't believe in your own holiness. Because if you're holy and you believe that you're holy, as, as like the Baal Shem Tov said, there's, there's four different types of people. I don't know if I'll be able to name all four of the types, but one is a good person who thinks he's bad, a bad person who thinks he's bad, a good person who thinks he's bad, no, a bad person who thinks he's good, and a good person who thinks he's good. And he says, of those four, which is the worst? He says, a good person who thinks he's good because there's no hope for that person. (laughs) So a person... as we say many times, if in Torah you think you've arrived, this is the greatest proof that you haven't arrived. Right? Because God is infinite. And God puts a piece of himself inside everyone. Right? So you have a piece of that infinity inside of you. And by definition, if it's infinite, that means it never ends. So if you think that you've arrived then somehow you completely misunderstand the fact that the, the levels and the ladder to climb is endless. There's a, there's a fundamental arrogance there, which is based on a misunderstanding of, of, of really what's going on. However, in understanding that you haven't arrived, you also have to have some level of self-esteem in order to drive you on to continue. 
Because if you think that you're absolutely hopeless, then you've essentially removed the battery from your car. So you can't function. So you have to have proper self-esteem because that's what keeps you going. But you also have to understand that the journey never ends. So what's so beautiful about what Reb Elimelech said, and this isn't um, against the, the, the previous story of the Chovetz Chaim because it's, it's also contained in his story, but, but the point is made clearer in the Reb Elimelech story, in the second story, which is he said, remember the man was saying to him, you know, Reb Elimelech is so great. And he said back, no, Reb Elimelech is nothing. And then in the end he says, you told the truth and I also told the truth. In other words, here you see in a very condensed form the necessity for acknowledging the truth. He says, I'm great. Okay, there's something to it. But I also say I'm not great. There's something to that. And that's a, that's a very healthy balance. That's a very healthy balance, right? And then a person has to know how to fine-tune that in terms of addressing what their situation is. Like sometimes if you're feeling a little bit down, you have to increase, you have to increase, you know, the, 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 the acknowledgement of your greatness, right? In order to keep you going. And sometimes if you're like too, you know, high up, you bring yourself down a little bit and you go, you know, really I'm nothing. So, so this dynamic is expressed in a classic teaching from the Kutzka Rebbe, which is that every person has to have two pieces of paper, right? One in each pocket. One that says that the entire world was created just for me. And the other that says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Right? But there's a part two to this teaching that I never hear people say, which is very, very important, which is, and then you have to know when to pull out each piece of paper. Now, that deserves further explanation because that's a very, very critical point. You see, the way the Yetzirah works is, I heard this explained one time, and I, I can't quote the source, but it's, it's very wonderful and accurate. If there's something that needs to be done, a job that needs to be done, say maybe for the community or something like that, that involves, whatever it is, that involves you going out of your way, Right? Then when a person asks you, can you do such and such a thing? We need this. It's important. And then you say back, oh, who am I? This is such a big job. I'm so small, you know. So that's the Yetzirah inside you, really just trying to get out of the work. But it, 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 it expresses itself as such a beautiful humility, right? Then when that same person insults, when that same person gets insulted, the person's reaction is, does he know who I am? All of a sudden, he's very great. A moment ago, when he had to do a job, oh, I'm nothing. Now that you've insulted me, who, who are you to insult me? You know who I am? So you see, the nature of the Yetzirah is to make you very sort of humble when there's a job that needs to be done so you don't have to do the work. But if your ego is insulted or your honor is insulted, all of a sudden you get outraged. So it's, it's the worst of both worlds. It's the worst of both worlds. So, so relating this back to the other thing, what the Kutzka Rebbe is saying is something very phenomenal, which is that you have to know when to pull out which piece of paper. It's not so obvious. Because sometimes a person will, let's say, I didn't get invited to a particular event, right? So a lot of times 
the person will reach down into their pocket and pull out the paper. The whole world was made for me. <laughs> they reached into the wrong pocket. <laughs> so a person has to know not just, ah, oh, I'm dust and ashes, and ah, oh, the whole world was made for me, but they have to know when to apply each thing and that's that's really the that's really the real work that's the real work right there not so much the other thing that's a, more of a basic thing okay okay so now let's continue to move on so so if a person believes in their own holiness this is a stira this is a contradiction to actually being holy Okay, that's, that's, that's one point. Let's make another point. And Reb Shlomo is such a master of, of this particular quality, well, of all these qualities, really, but this particular quality, which was having secrets with God. Now, that's very different from having secrets from God, because you, God knows everything. You, no one has any secrets from God. But having secrets with God means something else. That means that you do things, but you, like, you do, you, you give tzedakah, or you um, do a chesed for someone, but you don't, oh, you don't tell anybody about it. Just God knows. And then you have a secret with God. And so that's something that is a very beautiful thing because it, it builds your relationship with God. Because now you have, like, like, you know, you have something, this extra thing that's shared. You have this relationship that's going on, which becomes a very tangible relationship. Because this is something between you and God. Something very beautiful between you and God. So that's, that's, that's special, you know. Um, and, and let's... Let's 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 build on that some more. You see, I imagined I imagined a conversation between someone who is is visiting another person's um, orchard. Like you go to someone's estate, okay, and you see like the person showing you his estate, and it's sort of like wow, there's. A, all sorts of fruit trees and gardens and it's really overwhelming. It's really amazing. It's amazing, you know? And 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 but what the landowner doesn't tell you is that his estate actually goes for thousands and thousands of miles in every direction past just what you're seeing. That he doesn't tell you. <laughs> So you're just overwhelmed by what you see, but you don't even know what's be, what's the, what the actual truth is, right? And so I think that's a little bit, Kaviyoko, that's a little bit like us and God. God shows us this physical universe, and it seems to be overwhelming. It's filled with all these beautiful things and amazing things, and we're like, wow, God, this is incredible. Like the person in the field looking at the trees in the orchard, right? But 
God actually goes on way past what we see for dimensions and what we call olomos, like spiritual dimensions and worlds beyond, 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 beyond in every direction forever. And we're just wowed by what we see. But do you see this incredible, this consummate humility of God? Right? That, that, he's, not, that he's not sort of bragging, so to speak, about, do you know that this is the, only the smallest piece? Do you know that this is only the smallest piece? What exists beyond? So again, we have this aspect of, of, of what it says in Gomorrah Megillah. It says, where you see God's greatness, you also see his humility. Right? And so here this world is such a revelation of God's greatness. And yet simultaneously, it's such an expression of his humility because there's so much more to this world that he's not even showing us with our eyes. That's amazing. Amazing. So, so there's a holiness to that. And, 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 and by extension, we should just sort of appreciate how that same dynamic is at work with each one of us in our own lives. I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, you have a piece of this infinity inside of you. So when you think of yourself, when you evaluate, evaluate yourself, you can just look at yourself as, okay, so I have two hands and two feet and, and two ears, whatever it is, and this is basically what's of me. This is my orchard, so to speak. This is, my, this is the revealed aspect of myself. But then you have to also realize that you have this soul inside of you so that the, the real you extends in every direction for like, you know, crazy, crazy, like, dimensions. And so that's, that's, who, that's who you are. That's who you are. And so you have to, you have to, th- and, then, and then you have to say, okay, so then, so imagine you have a ring, right? And you, you, you don't know the value of this ring. And so the, you're willing to trade it for a few pennies. But really, this ring is worth, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. So that person is a fool because they're engaging in a, in a, in a business proposition when they don't know the value of, of what they have. So if you really extend, like in dramatic proportions all around, and that's you... The question is, what are you trading yourself for? What are, what are you using your time for? What are you getting involved with exactly? Because what they're getting is something enormous. Or what you're giving up, perhaps, what you're trading for, might actually be a ridiculous trade. So a person has to understand their own value. And part of your value is the unseen aspect of it which again hints at this idea of of Kedusha, of holiness, because you have the revealed and you have the aspect which is not revealed, not seen, right? 
So again, we're piecing all these things together. This is just an, an impressionistic take, but we're, we're traveling through different, different ideas over here. So, so I want to tell you uh, a couple of stories. Um, so I, I saw this. Um, the the Belzer Rebbe made a very amazing escape. I'm still in the middle of reading about it in World War II. Um, and was able to get out of one of the, the, the ghettos in, in, in Poland. And uh, just the amount of planning that went into this was absolutely incredible, right? Um, and just, they're talking about his trials and tribulations inside the, the ghettos and trying to save his life. And, and he himself, during this whole process, was, was scrupulously observant of the mitzvot, which is in itself miraculous. Every mitzvah, every chumrah, all the strictness that, that, that someone on his spiritual level, a Rebbe, would, would, would apply, he, he applied. And, and all the customs, all the minhagim, he kept everything, even under the most absolute dire, almost impossible circumstances. So, so that in itself is, is amazing and inspiring. But, but there are these two particular stories that I've come across that, that I, I just want to share with you, which again shines on this, this question of this X factor of Kedusha. What is it exactly? And, and so um, one of his Hasidim, um, his name was uh, David Yaroslaver. I, I guess Yaroslav was probably a, a province there. So, you know, David from Yaroslav, right? So he was able to, um, he was trying to go from, see, they would periodically wipe out, they would have these things called actions, which were horrible pogroms where the Nazis would come in and they would basically just kill off everyone there and deport the rest, right? And so, so you either got shot there or if you were saved, what does that mean? That, that meant that you'd go to a concentration camp and most likely get killed there. So there were these horrible, horrible, horrible events. And, and, and sometimes if one place had, had had one, you could somehow try to escape to another one. Or if another one hadn't had one for a while or had just had one, then you could go after they had just had one because they were unlikely to have another one so soon. So people were, had different survival strategies in place. And so since this particular place had just had one of these events, Someone was trying to escape to that place. And this was David Yaroslaver. And he bribed um, someone uh, who had a, you know, a wagon with a, a lot of hay. And so he took his family inside the, the, the cart. And they were all covered over. And the, the wagon driver was going at night. you know, And then at a certain point... The, the wagon driver was just like, no, this is not going to work because uh, they're going to find you guys and then I'm going to get killed and uh, deals off. So basically, in the middle of nowhere, he makes the people get out. They're completely exposed now, right? It's the middle of the night. And they're terrified. They're terrified, as anyone would be. And they go and they're trying to hide, but it says that in that area there was just low vegetation, 
which means there was no real tall grass or woods to really hide in. So again, they were completely exposed. And so they're hiding there and, and they're terrified and they find someone in the woods there who tells them that the, the, the ghetto that they're trying to sneak into. I mean, you can imagine how, what a low place were we in, where we, we were in, that we were risking our lives to sneak into a ghetto, right? I mean, that's the bottom of the bottom, right? So, so they, they find this hole in the fence that the person told them about, and they're able to sneak into where they wanted to get to. And so, at least at this point, they were safe. And then the Belzer Rebbe was in that community, in that ghetto, and they go and they see him. And the Gabai, the, the Rebbe's uh, assistant, says, oh, you gave the Rebbe such a, such a fright last night. Now, wait a second. There's no cell phones, obviously. There's no communication at all, Right? The Gabai told him that several times during the night, this is the middle of the night, the Rebbe was saying, Ay, David Yaroslaver needs a Yeshua, a salvation. Several times during the night, Ay, David Yaroslaver needs a salvation. So let's, let's tell a second story and then we'll kind of piece it together. So the, the Belzer Rebbe, while, while he was there, was keeping very strict um, uh, kashrus, the laws of keeping kosher. And the main thing that he was depending on to, to stay alive was drinking milk. Now we have a halacha, it's called um, Chal of Yisrael. And um, what that means is that because milk, milk can come from all different kinds of animals. Like a pig also uh, makes milk. So you can have milk from a pig. You know, that's, that's um, you know, if you have a farm with lots of farm animals and the animals need milking. So, so there, there are all sorts of unkosher animals that also make milk. So in order to ensure, if you want to purchase milk, that your milk is coming from a kosher animal, which it has to be in order to be kosher, then you have to have uh, uh, supervision. Uh, a Jew has to see the milking process to just guarantee that the, the milk itself is coming from a kosher animal. Now, interestingly, just as an aside, Rav Moshe Feinstein says in, in contemporary America today that um, there are all sorts of federal laws that, that uh, ensure from the U.S. government that the product is what it says it is. So if you're buying cow milk in a supermarket today and there's a picture of a cow on it, that means that according to U.S. government laws, that, that there's a, a, an assurance, the government is giving you an assurance that that is coming from uh, a cow, that milk. So because, because the farm owners are um, concerned that if they violate that and they use a different type of milk and then sell it as cow milk, that because there's government supervision that they'll get caught and they'll get fined. So Rav Moshe poskined that halachically we don't need it to be Chal of Yisrael. In other words, you don't need a private Jewish supervisor to overlook it because the government um, uh, laws 
are in, induce a level of concern or fear among the business owners enough that they will be trusted to, 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 to keep their word, that it actually is Kalna. Okay? So that's why um, you have in, in America, uh, you don't have this extra stringency of what we call Chalav Yisrael, where you need that extra level of supervision, right? Nonetheless, there are people who want to be very careful of this and believe that, I'm sure that there are other um, milas, other additional spiritual benefits to it, and so they want to be Chalav Yisrael. They want that extra measure, okay? But in Europe and in probably most countries today outside of America, you would still need it to be Chalav Yisrael because they don't have the government... Uh, laws in place which give you this level of assurance that you have in America today, right? So even someone who doesn't keep Chal of Yisrael because they live in America, when they go overseas, they can't just trust any milk product. They have to actually look into how the community holds on, say, just say the milk in a Starbucks in another country, right? Whether you're permitted to have that. So, so just, just, a, a, just a quick overview on that. Anyway, but back in Europe at this time during World War II, for sure you needed that level of supervision, you know, because you had like tiny little farms with a few animals. For, for sure you needed that level. And the Belzer Rebbe, you know, is not going to be drinking pig milk, believe me. So, so, so he trusted one of his people, right, to procure milk for him. So this particular person had some sort of work detail out in a field, and he was near a, a farmhouse, and this farmhouse was like, you know, it was all shacks, you know, it was all poverty, you know, and there was one farmer, and he had one cow, and so he would milk this one cow, and the, the Jew was able to escape during the, the, the lunch time, and go to this farmhouse, oversee the milking of the cow, and then bring, hide the milk, and then bring it back to the Belzer Rebbe. Okay? And this was an ongoing thing. And the Belzer Rebbe never once asked him, did you oversee this? Never once asked him. And so, you know, you can imagine, if you were that person, that, that's, wow, you know, the Belzer Rebbe is basically trusting you for the one food staple that's keeping him alive. I mean, that's, 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 that's a big deal, okay? It happened that, that, that this one day, as he's going to the farmhouse, he was assaulted by this group of guys who started, like, just beating him. And they were saying, where are you going? Why did you leave your work detail? What's going on? And he knew that if he said anything, basically, that's going to, could lead to the death of the Belzer Rebbe and certainly this, this source of food for him, right? So he doesn't say anything, and he takes the beating. And then he's able to, later on in the day, get over to the farmhouse, and he sees that the farmer has already done the milk. So he gets the milk, and, you know, imagine you're this guy. So you, you, the Belzerebi has to eat. Right? He can't starve. I mean, they, they weighed almost nothing. He weighed almost nothing. And to the end of his life, it said he weighed, I don't know, how much is a kilo? How many pounds is a 2. kilo? 2.2. 2.2. So he weighed 36 kilos. 
Like he basically kept his World War II weight until the end of his life. Right? Um, there's another, speaking of kilos, just another story that I saw there, that, in, that before the war, remember Bells was one of the, is still, I mean, Bells is huge in Israel. I mean, Bells back before the war, it's one of the great Hasidic dynasties in the world. Um, it says that he lit with a menorah that was made by one of the greatest silversmiths in Krakow, and that it was a meter tall, and that it weighed, pure silver, weighed eight kilos. So this was this, a massive silver, beautiful menorah. Like, I wonder where that menorah is, if it, if it still is around, right? Anyway, during the war, he came and he came to someone's house during Hanukkah, and, you know, everything was secret. Any, any mitzvahs that people were doing were punishable by death. So everything had to be done at the cost of your own life. And he came to this person's house inside one of these ghettos, and the person was lighting with glasses, just like a little oil in a glass, Right? And he, he lit in with that. Remember what he had before, right? And it said for the rest of his life, he just lit with glasses after that. Little humble glass. Like what he had before was literally kingly, like a king, like a king would have. And for the rest of his life, he just lit the menorah in, in like just little glasses. So Which was holier. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so he's debating, do I tell the Belzer Rebbe that, um, that I didn't see, that I didn't oversee the milk? If I tell him that I didn't oversee the milk, then he's not going to drink the milk. And then, who knows, maybe he could get sick and die. So what do I do? The halacha is that you have to save a life. And... Every day he's giving it to me from this cow. So today is going to be different. He's not going to give it to me from this cow. I mean, all the things that you would tell yourself in this situation, right? So he finally decides that it's what's called pakuach nefesh, which means it's to save a life. And he doesn't tell the bells Rebbe. He just gives him the milk and like normal and then goes off. Or he gives it to his assistant, most probably, you know. And then later on, the Belzer Rebbe calls him in and says to him, now remember, he never asked him once, never asked him once, did you oversee the milk? He said, did you oversee this milk? And he said, no, I didn't, I'm so sorry. I got beat up and I wasn't able to. And the Belzer Rebbe said, you know how many Jewish children there are who are going without milk? I can also go without milk. Okay, so these two stories, waking up in the middle of the night and knowing by name, by name, the chassid who is in trouble. And knowing when he had never asked once that this day that there was something wrong with this milk, this is, this is one of the manifestations of holiness. 
of, of Kedusha. So how do we explain it? How do we explain it? Because there's a certain ESP, there's a certain telekinetic extrasensory perception that exists and that's part of the discussion of holiness. How does that work exactly? And by the way, I once saw, I can't quote you the source, I'm sorry, but I once saw that going to the mikvah actually gives a person, builds a person's ESP, which I thought was interesting, you know? You know, I don't know that you dip into a mikvah once and you become psychic. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But, but there's, there's something to it. There's some connection. Because, I mean, if I were to try to explain it, well, let me give you what I was going to say before. If we have time, we'll go back to the mikvah for a second. A possible explanation for that. Um, so, by way of explanation, uh, my wife was having certain dreams about people and they were coming true. You know, this one was going to get married, this one was going to have a baby, these type of things. And she discussed it with a Rebbe and, and the Rebbe said, are you praying for these people? And, and she said, yes. And he said, well, this is because you're praying for them. There, there's an extra pathway an extra bond between you and th this person. And so, so because you have this extra bond between you and this other person, then some extra information flows due to this bond, due to this connection, due to this pathway that's formed through your prayer for them. So using that, and as you pray more for more people and things like that, this gift will increase. That's what he said. So now imagine a Rebbe. A Rebbe has so many Hasidim, and they're all praying for the Rebbe, and the Rebbe is praying for all of them. And so there are all these pathways and all these bonds that are there. And so you're able to access information. If someone is truly in trouble, there's a whole pathway, there's a whole connection that's that already exists for you to be able to receive that information. Right? And as part of this same discussion, but a different side of it, it says God looked into the Torah and he made the world. That the entire world is made out of the energy of the mitzvot. So the mitzvot themselves are building blocks and pathways. They're the, they're the sinews, they're the, the nerves, right? The muscles of, of, all of, of all of creation. It's the whole anatomy of reality is the various mitzvot. And when you're so scrupulous, so, so careful with the observance of the mitzvot, then you're completely in harmony with all of the different pathways of creation. And so you would know, you would understand if you picked up some milk that didn't have the proper supervision, you would understand that because you have a relationship with this mitzvah. And you would understand that there's a roadblock there because something didn't happen or something happened.
So this is an aspect of being holy as well, is this area around you, these connections between people and connections between the mitzvahs themselves. Right? And just to, just to double back to the idea of the mikvah for a moment, this is just coming to me now, so as they say, take it or leave it. But what's the whole idea of a mikvah? Is, is first of all, it's 40. It's got to be 40 measures of water, right? 40 hints at the revelation of the Torah, right? Because the Torah was given in 40 days at Mount Sinai, right? Over a period of 40 days. And you're immersing yourself within this, right? And so it's also, it's this area that's surrounding you, right? It's like, like the spiritual world that's surrounding you. And you're reaching some level of purity when you go underneath so that any blockages that are taking place are being removed. And so you're being put in harmony with that area which surrounds you. And so the whole idea of ESP, right? Extrasensory perception, being able to sense things that are going on with different people and different things. That's the area that surrounds you. That's, that's what's outside of you. So you're achieving a level of purity within the mikvah, and you're surrounded by the Torah itself, right? That's the 40. And all of a sudden, you're in harmony with all of these different things that are around you, this whole network that's around you. It could be. It could be one level anyway. Um, it's, it's really uh, an impossible topic to completely, to completely um, discuss this idea of what holiness is, right? But let's just review just a little bit and, 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 and just, it's the beginning of a discussion. So we have the Ramban who says that holiness, that you can be glut kosher and you can drink kosher wine and yet you can still be a glutton and a drunkard, right? So while as a basic level, we have to keep the mitzvahs, that holiness is something a little, is, is something beyond that, right? We said the story from Rebeli Melech of Lezhensk, right? He said, the person told him, you're so great. And he said, I'm not so great. And then when he found out that he was talking to Rebeli Melech of Lezhensk and, and yelling at him, he said, you told the truth and I told the truth. So an aspect of holiness is not believing in your own holiness, right? Whereas still acknowledging some central aspect of self-esteem, right? We said also that holiness is understanding is this relationship beyond yourself, being, being careful with the mitzvot, right, beyond, and, and, and praying for, for other people. And, and I would say, if we could just sum all of this up um, with one new point, but very concisely said, I hope, is not making it about yourself. And this is maybe, maybe even the central point which contains all the other points. That when a person is able to go through life and make other people the focus of their life, 
and other things the focus of their life, then they're actually liberated from self. And this is, this is something that there's a... So much of us go through life and there's a tyranny of self where, where we can't just escape our own needs and, and, and we can't help but to make it about us. And I would say just as an exercise, whenever you meet another person, right? Begin the conversation with asking them how they are. Right? Something so simple. Something so simple. But it's, it's, it's a way to somehow not making it about you. To, to condition yourself to not make it about you. And then all of a sudden, that can lead to a transformation where it's just more and more, just what can I do? Right? Um, maybe just two other very quick points. What's important? What, what's important? And, and, and what's, what's, what's the big picture? We, we, love, we love people who get the big picture because they remind us that a lot of times that what we think is, 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 is just so small, you know? And if a person can have their own immortality in front of them, like we always discuss that after we leave our bodies, we continue to exist as us, right? Like a flash drive taking all the information off the hard drive, right? Our soul leaves our body and it contains our personality and all the information and we don't just disappear in the infinity of God. We remain us. So if a person maintains the big picture and understands that this world is really so small and it's just an opportunity for doing acts of goodness, right? Then that's also holy. Because a holy person is someone who somehow knows in the face of darkness. And that's probably the most prized quality that we can have. Because can you imagine if you're lost in a forest and you meet someone and says this way? <laughs> what would you give? What would you give to that person? And, and, and we can all be that person because we have the basic information but the basic information is something that the world itself beats out of us every single moment. <laughs> Literally, the world is constantly screaming in our ear, this is all there is. And if you can be that person who says, no, no, this is not all there is. Right? Then all of a sudden you rise above this world. And, and, and that's something that we can all do.